Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have yet another amazing guest on the show. We have Katie who's an almost doctor, we can't call her a doctor yet which is so frustrating and she is a research scientist at a place called VOW. Welcome to the show Katie. Thanks so much for having me Amelia. Absolute pleasure. We're going to start with hopefully the easy question, what is your job? So I am a research scientist at VOW, and specifically I'm a research scientist too at VOW. So I'm involved in a lot of the experimental design and the management of our research streams at this small biotech company in Sydney. We're a young biotech company, and we're focused on cultured meat. Cultured meat. What? That sounds like maybe you take the cows out to the opera or something, and they listen to some music, or what kind of culture are we talking <laughs> Nothing quite as exciting as all that. Cultured meat is meat that's grown in a lab. So it's sometimes called clean meat or lab-grown meat. And all of these different phrases mean that it is grown in a lab instead of grown in a pasture. And so instead of kind of going to the family farm and growing up cattle on the farm and then taking them to a slaughterhouse and then them being processed by a butcher and then sending them to the grocery store, instead the idea is is that based on what we know about biology and what we've learned in basic biology research labs in academia and industry all across the world, the idea is that we can use these learnings in order to grow muscle cells together in such a way in a lab that we generate the physical meat that you would find in a cow in a petri dish within the lab. And then, so the idea is is that we'll be able to grow up this meat at large volumes and in new and interesting ways and in hopefully ways that are more environmentally friendly and more humane than some of the the big slaughterhouse activities that happen, especially in, in the Midwestern United States where I'm from. And yeah, we hope that we can be able to kind of produce meat in this new cleaner and and healthier way, hopefully, to feed millions of people across the world. So my mind is blown by a whole lot of things you just said then. And I have about 20 million questions that I want to follow up with. But one of the things you just said there was that potentially we could grow meat in new ways or different ways. Does that mean we could create entirely new meats? Like it's That's exactly what it means. So I'm working for VOW, which has VOW even within the cultured meat sphere, industry sphere, which is a growing industry of of small biotechs that are growing rapidly. VOW is a bit unique in that VOW is not attempting to merely replicate the taste of chicken or beef. VOW instead is looking at this as a new step forward in the food frontiers, kind of like um, when we went from eating grains like oats and barley. We moved from eating oats and barley to eating things like cereal. Um, that that was a, a major shift forwards in, in the food industry and, and something fundamentally new and different. And Vow thinks we can do the same thing with meat. We can find ways of combining kangaroo and pork to create a totally new and unique and fantastic meat experience. And that is the gold standard that we're aiming to achieve here at Vow. That 
And that's so exciting. And I know I should be kind of focusing in on the science, but at the moment, what I'm thinking about is all the new cookbooks that are going to have to be created to deal with cooking, like the absolutely what was it, kangaroo and pig, pig or something. The creativity that that will unleash for other areas is just insane too. Absolutely. No, I mean, if this does end up becoming the huge thing that our founders, and and we certainly hope that it does, this definitely changes like everything for forever. Okay. Am I allowed to ask you, where do vegans sit with this? Like, was it an animal, so therefore they can eat it? Or... Like, would that be up to the individual? Like, I love this question. So we have a we have a strong vegan presence at Vow, I would say. Um, and there are we get a, a large number of job applicants actually who say that they're vegans. And one of the main reasons they want to join us is because they see this as being a strategy by which vegans could enjoy eating meat again. And that said, our initial biopsies do come from an animal. We hope at some point that these biopsies are able to be obtained in a way that um, the animal is allowed to kind of continue living. And so it would there would be no animal death associated with our products. But you're correct in that a small number of cells will have come from one original donor animal that is later able to be eaten by many, many people. And so I suspect different vegans would have to kind of make up their own mind about where they they sit with that. Yeah, because it opens up this whole new world of ethical consideration. Definitely. Yes, all the vegans at Vow do sample our product when we have tasting demos. But that said, I'm sure it's a certain kind of vegan that ends up working at a cultured meat company. So I certainly wouldn't want to to speak for all vegans. Yeah, they might be a bit self-selected. So you've eaten this. I have. Ooh, can you can you give us like what <laughs> what are we talking about? Because in my head it's kind of like I can imagine lab growing mints, right? Because it's sort of like mushy and, you know, it doesn't have too much structure to be fairly easy to just like create a mush. And that's what we see in that kind of the section of the supermarket that's now dedicated to non-meat meat pretend stuff. What's something that you've tasted that you're really excited about? So I will stress that the samples that are the, the product that I've tasted at this point is very much a work in progress. We are a one about a year and a half old as a company. So we certainly haven't been around for very long. We've only just in the last month hired our new food force team, which will be helping us to kind of bring our product from, you know, the work of a bunch of scientists in the lab to something that actually tastes fantastic. And we've been working with, yeah, just people who really know their food in order to do that. So the early products I've tasted have certainly not been kind of anything like what we would eventually bring to market. So probably hard to, to say in that respect. That, al- that also said that the product that we largely tasted at our demo day and kind of exhibited to the world back in August was product that was prepared by Neil Perry. And he kind of took some of this lab-grown meat and, and cooked it up and prepared it in some different ways. And when Neil Perry prepared it, naturally, it was absolutely delicious. So, so preparation is everything at this stage. But I, I do suspect that given more research and development time and, and given that new food force, we'll be making a lot of progress over the next couple of months. I'm, I was going to ask you about bugs because I feel like bugs are the, or like insects is kind of one of the other alternative food things, but I can't work out how to phrase a question isn't like, do you think bugs are better? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do have, just interestingly, we do have a scientist at VOW who's done some work with insects and she's really excited about the idea of 
going down that path. And so it might be something we check out at some point, but we haven't pursued that yet. And I guess like if you're looking at creating entirely new meats, then there's no reason why you couldn't include insect and like fish and that sort of stuff as well. Oh, absolutely. Yep. The goal is to have an absolutely massive cell library of uh, different types of cells from different types of animals from across the world. And then as we do more and more research and development in coming years, and that includes after kind of products are, are out in the world, we can continue to do research and development to figure out, you know, the, the tastiest cells from the tastiest animals and mix them together in, in the newest and most delicious ways. Have you got any idea of a time frame of when listeners who I suspect that there's going to be some excited people, there's going to be some people who are a bit like, wow, that's really creepy. No, but there's also going to be people who are like, yes, this is the future. Any kind of time frame of when people might be able to see something on the shelf at the supermarket? Well, I know that Vow is hoping to kind of move towards the fine dining space in the next two to three years. So that's something that it's the initial products will be extraordinarily expensive just due to kind of the cost of scaling. Until we're scaled up fully, the cost will be higher. So the first products will definitely be really expensive and, and we're hoping to enter market through way of the fine dining scene where we can kind of learn what consumers like and then iterate on the products that taste the most delicious to bring those to the grocery store. So that will be a little bit of a longer process to actually hit the grocery store. There are definitely other companies that are, are focused on getting to market as fast as possible who are looking more at replicating the chicken or beef experience. So genuinely, I think it will be a lot closer than a lot of people might think that we might begin seeing these cultured meat products on the shelves like in the next couple of years. Because in my head, it was like five to 10 years kind of, this is a lovely futuristic happy sustainable dream that will happen one day yeah I wouldn't be surprised if it was if it was sooner than that but we'll see that that's exciting and don't worry listeners when these things start coming out we will do our best to make sure that you hear about it there's so much science in this it's really awesome okay so you're in quite a unique working environment I imagine what does an average day look like for you how do you go about creating these meats? That's such a hard question. Anybody who works in a startup will know that there really isn't an average day. And when there is an average day, your average day one month will look very different to your average day the next month. I joined VOW a little over eight months ago, and our science team was five people plus our chief scientific officer. And since then, I mean, I, I don't even know off the top of my head how big our science team is right now, but it's at least at least 10 or 12 people right now. It's gotten, it's gotten big fast, and we're taking on some new people at the beginning of March as well. So there's been a lot of growth just during my time at VAL. Mostly what I do every day is I spend some time thinking about experimental design. I think about what experiments we need to be running over the next week, over the next month, over the next three months in order to hit the milestones and the goals that we've set ourselves. And VAL, at VAL, we set some pretty ambitious goals and it's exciting and a little terrifying and certainly not boring. So my main job is to take those goals and then figure out how to actually make them happen in the research lab so that we can learn the information that we need 
in order to move on to the next big and scary goal. Are you able to give us a bit of an idea of an experiment that you have run? Sure. So I work very closely with helping to manage two different of the major research streams at VOW. I'm really involved in the cells stream, which is all about kind of optimizing the cells that we're growing our meat from. And I'm really involved in the media development stream. And this is all about developing juice that we can grow our cells in that will keep them happy and growing for a long time. And the thing about this juice is this juice is used to grow cells in laboratories across the world. It's There's a pretty basic formula for how to make cells grow. Unfortunately, a really big component of what helps cells grow includes this thing called fetal bovine serum, uh, which is essentially derived from the blood of baby cows. So obviously, this is not something that we can continue to grow our cells in, in a cultured meat company. This is one of the biggest challenges associated with cultured meat, is developing a, a media to grow our cells in that doesn't include this component that's used in essentially just about every other cell culture lab in the world. And so that's kind of been one of my major jobs recently, designing experiments to look at different levels of growth factors or different ingredients that I think will help replace the serum in our media. And and yeah, that's what I'm frequently doing, or that's been a major focus of mine for the last couple of months. That's a fascinating problem to be facing because that's kind of foundational to everything else that you're trying to achieve. Absolutely. <laughs> what could you replace that with? Not bananas or something. I like you need something very nutritious and yummy. Exactly. And it probably ends up being a combination of, of delicious things. And yeah, as I said, this is the biggest, probably the one of the undoubtedly one of the biggest issues faced by every single cultured meat company in the world. So I certainly can't give you give you a laundry list right now. But yeah, it's it's a lot of a lot of things that might be a lot of different proteins that might be found in serum or, or things of that nature. Yeah. And I imagine when you work that one out, you're probably going to keep the recipe fairly close to your chest. Yes, that ends up probably being something that's kind of the IP that Vow has or the intellectual property that Vow has. Is there any kind of overlap in this kind of research with medical research where they're growing like hearts and replacement tissue and that sort of stuff? Is there similarities? Oh, absolutely. So our chief scientific officer, James Ryle, comes from kind of more of a, a muscle biology background and, and thinking about it in the context of medicine. At least he did that during his postdoc, I know for sure. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was doing that as an academic as well. Uh, my background's actually in immunology as well. I was doing my PhD in respiratory medicine until about eight months ago. And so, yeah, there's a lot of overlap between immunology and cell biology in general and, and cultured meat. And that's really why we have such a, a strong team of cell biologists and people who have more medical science experience that have come to join us on our science team here. Will the research that you're doing be able to feed back into medicine? Or will it kind of just be like from medicine to where you're at? I'm not sure. I could envision a scenario in which if a serum-free media is developed that is significantly cheaper than using kind of those blood products to grow cells, as well as just seen as the more ethical choice, I could envision, I mean, in an ideal world, I'd love to see serum-free media be a really viable alternative that's used 
across the the world for ethical reasons. And also it it could just be a lot cheaper as well. Um, And then there's also some just consistency issues that you face when you're using serum sometimes. So yeah, I can can see ways in which there would be some overlap. Uh, The big difference though between us and medical medical development of things like organs is the fact that at the end of the day, we are trying to grow muscle that just tastes good. Medical researchers are often trying to build an organ that will go into the human body and actually work. So personally, I see growing muscle that just tastes good as as being not necessarily an easier task, but there's less kind of immunological, there's less details associated with biology that you, you need to be concerned about than, than maybe you would have to be concerned about if we were talking about organs. And the organ stuff is also kind of cut and dried science too, whereas when you're talking about what tastes good, that's heading into the arts of flavor and texture and all that sort of thing. And it's, yeah, they're similar, but I can see how they're very different as well. Exactly. What are some of the skills that you need to be working in this particular environment because I'm feeling like it's not your average research scientist kind of job. Yeah, I would agree with that. But <laughs> no, I would I would definitely agree that it's definitely not your average research job in that I definitely have to be prepared to jump into a lot of different things at once. And that's true of startups in general, but that's especially true of startups that are focused on a couple of different fields, like when you have food and biology kind of merging like we have at VAL. So you have to be willing to kind of turn and, and jump into something new. And yeah, so you have to be able to kind of adapt and and be willing to jump into try and try new things and to take a lot of initiative beyond kind of thinking, you know, what is what are the things I need to accomplish today? Okay, I'm just going to do those things and then leave work and, and close the door and, and not think about it anymore. No, I really have to be willing to kind of jump into new things and take on new things that I'm maybe not comfortable with right now and accept that I'm not going to be comfortable, but get excited about the growth that can happen and just do my best. So adaptability, I guess, is something that I would say is a really, really big one there. The other thing that fits into adaptability is the fact that, you know, we're doing really new science and we're using cell lines that have may have never been used before. Not very many people have worked with kangaroo muscle cells before. So all scientists know how to kind of read the primary literature and learn about how to do things based on what previous scientists have done based on the literature. That said, there's a lot of things that show up in the literature, which maybe don't apply when you're working with these novel cell lines that we deal with at VAL. So kind of being comfortable with not knowing and and being able to pivot and troubleshoot and try new things is is really important at VAL. Um, And then also just being able to be a really good communicator is important because VAL is so multidisciplinary and we talk with, I mean, we're, we're a small company and we're working closely with our food team and we're working closely with other biologists and we're working closely with our operations team and and the exec team who's making decisions about how to spend our investment capital and how to plan a go-to-market strategy. And all of everybody has slightly different priorities and slightly different ideas about what needs to happen. And we just all need to make sure that we can communicate the important things to each other clearly so that we can make good progress together. All fantastic things. And I have to say, I've always thought of being uncomfortable is if you're too comfortable, you're not growing and growth happens in that that uncomfortable zone. Absolutely. And I think at a young startup that's tackling a really, really big problem, that's uncomfortable is, is, a, is a normal state of being, for sure. 
Would you say strategic thinking is part of it as well? Because you talked earlier about having these really ambitious long-term goals and then needing to be able to break them down into basically an experiment, sort of into experiment by experiment so that you're working towards these sort of longer-term big picture things? Definitely. I would actually say that that's my, the, the main role that I play right now as a research scientist too. As a company, we set goals every quarter and then I take those goals and really need to break them down in a way that I can communicate with my team and they can know what needs to happen over the course of the next week, two weeks and month in order to hit that milestone. Mm. And so, yeah, that's definitely my main goal right now. It's a little bit project management sort of too. Definitely. And that's been fun, really. During my PhD, it was a pretty solitary project. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in the lab just by yourself. And so being in this new position where I'm working really closely with other people and working with younger scientists who are just so excited about what we're doing and really passionate, it just kind of reminds you about why you got into science in the first place sometimes when you're having hard days. And that's just really, really nice. And you're working at genuinely the cutting edge. Yeah. That's got to be exciting knowing that you're discovering things that legit no one else has ever seen or possibly thought of. Oh, absolutely. I think that's kind of the thing that a lot of scientists just live for, that moment when you're like, wow, I have something really, really cool here. There's, I mean, that's why I originally fell in love with science. And yeah, no, VAO is a, a fantastic place to be continually experiencing that sort of thing. Can I ask a completely off-topic question? Absolutely. So with the meat, yeah. I'm assuming you could design it. So I'm thinking we've had a number of guests on the show who've done all sorts of research into trying to help people live healthier lives. And obviously cholesterol is a problem. Bacon is something that people really like. And can you help develop foods or is that part of it to develop healthier meats? Because obviously kangaroo is super healthy. Absolutely. And I don't see why not. I don't see why we couldn't design meat that tastes delicious but has less cholesterol as long as, you know, we figure out exactly what makes it delicious and then we can work around the cholesterol. Then, I, yeah, I, that's, I think, one of the coolest things about this idea of growing meat from its bare building blocks rather than just kind of taking it in its grown form and cooking it and, and trying to make it in new ways to make it taste good and, and delicious Instead, we can start from the building blocks and piece things together in, in totally new ways and make it healthier, make it taste better. It's it's exciting. I don't see why we couldn't do that. Cool. So we just have to hope that it wasn't the cholesterol that was the bit that tasted good. Exactly. As long as that's not as long as that's not the case, then we'll be in the clear. <laughs> Surely not. Surely not. How have you ended up in this role? Startup food. That's that's pretty cool. But ha- where did you start up from? say high school, what was your plan and how have you ended up here? So I've been really lucky in that it seems like so far I've been able to choose my jobs largely based on what I thought would be coolest to work on. Um, and and I, I feel very lucky about that. So I, I was really lucky in that. So I grew up in upstate New York in the U.S. and the high school that I went to had a science research in high school program. And so I got involved in a biomedical research lab really young. When I was 14, I began spending my summers working in a lab, a medical research lab nearby focused on Lyme disease. And I say working, I mean, I was playing with a pipette and I was learning some really important things. And I am just so lucky that the staff there were happy to have 
you know, a young person who was excited, but probably not super well trained yet. Um, and they, they really just took me on and, and helped me learn so much. And it really just sparked my love of science from there. And so I spent four summers working full time in that lab. And then it was time for me to go to university. And when it came to choosing my university, it ended up being as simple as my research mentor in high school picked up the phone and called his buddy who was working at the University of Vermont and studying a very similar topic to him, also studying Lyme disease. And so I went to go study at the University of Vermont and work in his lab for four years. So Lyme disease is something that I, I studied for a long time in high school and undergrad and was real and was and am very, very passionate about. This is a, an infectious disease really common in the northeastern United States that's spread by a tick. I had a really good friend who got really sick from Lyme disease. And this was kind of the first experience where I had where I realized that I couldn't solve a problem or learn what was going on exactly by going to the library and reading about it or Googling about it. This was like a totally new issue, this idea that we didn't know how to fix people who were dealing with symptoms associated with Lyme disease. And so that to me was just that realization that, you know, maybe I could do something about this and I could help contribute in some way was just really, really cool for a young high school student. And I'm just really grateful that people gave me those opportunities to do that. And so as a result, I mean, I studied hard in school and I did well, but my research was always like that always felt like, you know, this is what really matters, like working in this research lab and trying to get closer to finding a way to cure some of these diseases. And so after university, it was kind of natural for me to go into my go and do a PhD and, and everybody for years had been thinking I would go do a PhD in immunology and I had been excited about it for years and yet I had also been doing this for eight years and so in some ways the idea of going into a PhD and starting a whole nother degree was really overwhelming so I, I did work for a consulting company in the life sciences for a little while but I really just missed being so close to the research and feeling like I was the one that was using my brain to try to make some strides in the scientific field. And so I did my PhD and I've done, I did that for the last four years. Um, and that was just a blast. I did my PhD through this program called the NIH Cambridge Scholars Program. And it's essentially two years at the National Institutes of Health in the US and two years at the University of Cambridge. And I did zoom out a little bit. I stepped away from Lyme disease for this project because most of my mentors told me that, you know, Katie, you spent eight years studying Lyme disease. There's a lot of other science out there. Maybe you go do some other things and maybe you'll come back to Lyme disease. So I, I studied other, other diseases and immunology more generally during my PhD. But then I ended up in Australia in March last year while I was writing up my PhD and, and writing some research articles and finishing that up. And this job advertisement just popped up for this research scientist position at a startup. They were looking for somebody who knew a lot about cells and growing them. And they were looking for somebody who could kind of help teach other young scientists and help really make a, a company grow and to make a tangible product like me. And that just was kind of appealing to me. My PhD was like some really, I found some really cool things in my PhD and I'm, I'm glad that I spent that time doing that. And yet a lot of my work was pretty basic and there isn't, you know, a clear like therapeutic or something that will come out of that PhD. So the idea of pivoting to something like that, where I might be able to actually grow a meat product was, was just kind of a cool idea. And I thought this sounded perfect. And luckily for me, they, they agreed that I was a good fit for them as well. So here I am. That's fantastic. All of that. 
is just wonderful. <laughs> and it does sound like it's the perfect job in a whole lot of ways. Like obviously it's in a completely different field, but it's bringing together a lot of stuff. It is. And although it's in a completely different field, the day-to-day of what I think about now is actually very similar in terms of topic to what I thought about when I was working in biomedical research labs. So on the surface level, it looks very different. When it gets down to it, the, the science is, is really, really similar. And so that does help. And also, I, I like I like doing new things. It's nice not getting bored. I always joked that during my PhD, the reason why I had to do it at two different locations and have four different supervisors. It's really that I just didn't want to get bored during those four years. And so, yeah, being able to, to do something like work at VOW when there's absolutely no chance of me getting bored is, is great. How are you finding the transition from academia to, it's not even corporate, like it's complete startup land. How's that? It's very far from corporate. My founders really, really dislike the corporate model. It's a challenge, but it also... I also am finding so many of the skills that I developed during my PhD to come in, coming in really, really handy here. And I do think that to a certain extent, that's because I was lucky enough to have my PhD split between two different countries and four different supervisors. I had to do a lot more kind of management of kind of people and project management in that I needed to make sure that I got everything done in the UK that I needed to before I moved to the US and then before I moved back to the UK. So there, there were a lot of logistics to sort out during my PhD and a lot of things that in terms of project management that I needed to be very, very on top of. And so in transitioning to my job at VOW, I do a lot of those same things every single day, just more so in that I work with more people and I'm responsible for kind of more people's well-being here at VOW. And I take that really, really seriously. I would say that's the biggest difference, really, this feeling that, you know, I have this chance to help mentor younger scientists and help them grow their career and, and fall in love with science as much as I did. And I, I take that really seriously, mostly because, again, I was so lucky back in high school and university to have such fantastic mentors when I was first starting out. And so more than anything, I really want to be able to do the same thing for the people that I work with. And in that case, they're very lucky to be working with you. Well, I'm lucky to be working with them too. They, uh, I, I think that, that VOW does a really fantastic job of, of hiring people. Um, I work with some really fantastic people. Is there anything you'd like to say to people who are considering moving out of academia and into the private sector? Because often there can be a bit of I guess a stigma against doing that. I don't know if that that appears to be the case in like Australian academic culture, at least. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard both some stigma against moving out of academia, the idea that maybe you would move to industry just because you couldn't hack it in academia is definitely sometimes a prevailing feeling. But on the on the flip side, I've also met a lot of academics who really want to move into industry. So I, I think it I think it just depends a bit. I think one thing that I heard a lot about moving to industry was the idea that, oh, you don't want to move to industry because you won't have any control over what you're studying. And if something's no longer going towards, you know, a tangible product or something that the company can sell, then, you know, you won't be able to study it anymore. And I think that's a really valid concern for some people who are academics who really love the basic biology and the the basic underlying science. But for me, that was never me. I always have been driven by this desire to make things better, to make a therapeutic for Lyme disease or 
to, to figure out a new strategy to diagnose diseases during my PhD. And, and now to make a cultured meat product that tastes delicious and is also better for our planet. Um, and so for me, if I, I'm not really as interested in exploring kind of streams of research that don't directly lead to, to that goal. And so for me, it's, it's a really good fit. But I completely, I also have friends who are much more interested in kind of the discovery and the basic biology, and it wouldn't be a good fit for them. And, and that's really okay. We, the world needs both. I think that's the best tagline. It's not one or the other. Absolutely. So obviously you were quite lucky or, or something to be involved in labs at like from the age of 14. That's for a lot of people unimaginable. Are there any other things that have happened along your career journey that have really kind of sparked your interest and also like help keep you engaged when experiments start going wrong or you don't get into a program or that sort of stuff? I think having support of family and friends and people who love you is always important no matter what field you're in when things are going wrong. Certainly that's true when experiments aren't going right in science. I think it's really important to not tie all of your self-worth up in you know how well experiments are going because if you do that, then when experiments go poorly, you'll feel horrible about yourself. So I think, yeah, I think having family and friends who have really encouraged me in, in science, but also kind of reminded me to keep my priorities in line as well ha- have been important. And also just people, you know, people who tell you you can do things when I think especially when you're I'm thinking especially of the trough that I think pretty much every Ph.D., student goes through. There are times during your PhD when, you know, you're not the best judge of your own work. And and so having people to remind you that you're not the best judge of your own work. And if you think things are horrible, then, you know, that isn't necessarily true. I think that's really important. So kind of having those mentors and people outside who are able to look in and be like, yeah, no, you're you're just being harsh on yourself right now. Absolutely. Okay. So obviously you work in a really cool environment you've got really cool people around you the mission statement sounds pretty awesome what bit about it are you most excited about what helps you get up every day and do squishy things with cell cultures and stuff it's really twofold for me I think the the caring for the people I work with side of it in terms of the mentorship is a bigger component than I maybe anticipated that it would be when I first joined I I really really genuinely care about the younger scientists I work with and, and making sure that they succeed and making sure that they learn absolutely as much as they can when I'm working with them. So that's a huge part of what gets me out of bed every morning. And then the other huge bit, probably slightly huger bit, is the ability of this to really just fix, ch- help change some of the current environmental challenges associated with meat production worldwide right now. It's it's the environment, it was the health, until I switched to cultured meat, the health angle is always what really motivated me. And, and now it's very much the the environmental angle. Yeah, right. What What's sort of helped in, or what's resulted in that kind of change, do you think? Is it just like exposure to information or? I mean, I think I've always been a pretty big picture person, but I think during my PhD when I was working on, you know, this little nitty gritty bit about a cell called a neutrophil in lupus. It was a really exciting project and we learned a lot. But at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, I got a couple of cool publications out of it. But aside from that, the likelihood of a new therapeutic being developed based on this is probably pretty low. And I know that. And so I think during that time, I began to realize that while the health research I was doing was really cool, like the environmental 
issue that everyone faces due to the planet is in some ways, it's even bigger than, you know, the fairly large percentage of people who deal with autoimmune diseases. And so in that respect, I kind of had begun thinking more and more about the environment and kind of wondering if there was some way for me to be able to get involved in that despite all of my training in immunology. And and this was a way where it was like, wow, yeah, my immunology research experience can be really helpful here. And I actually think I can help. And that really made me want to help. Because traditionally you think, oh, you have to study like, I don't know, biochemical engineering or something like that to contribute to global environmental change. But you've actually studied exactly the right things. As it turns out, yeah, not what I anticipate, not at all what I anticipated when I started this scientific journey of mine, but... And also not something any careers counsellor at any point would have told you. No, but that's okay. I mean, that's what they say, right? That a lot of the jobs that we might be training for now won't necessarily be relevant 10, 20, 30 years from now. You just never really know where your career path is going to take you. Which is why I feel like I'm very lucky, that, or I'm grateful that I've been able to learn a lot of, you know, very specific science-based skills, but also just more general project management skills because both are necessary. Yeah, and coming back to to those things that are kind of driving you, you're in a really awesome situation because you've got this bigger picture goal, which is really important for motivation, but you've also got like you're going to get the daily feedback of working with awesome people and seeing them grow. And so you've got like lots of little wins as well as sort of like a longer term big win. That's a fantastic way to look at it. You're exactly right. (laughs) I think that's going to make it so much easier to get out of bed when you've got short and long term good stuff going on. Definitely. And because the people are also always awesome. It doesn't matter if, you know, sometimes the science will have two to three weeks where things aren't going right and you don't know why. But the people are always kind of there and, you know, requiring support. And so, yeah. Yeah. And you get to lead by example. When stuff doesn't go well, they're going to be like, what's Katie doing? Exactly. And so, you know, you need to, you know, you need to be a good example in those cases. It's, it's good encouragement. Yeah. No pressure, but. Exactly. So speaking of like mentoring, is there any advice you would give to a young person, either considering sort of an immunology research career or who's just like startups would be really interesting to work in? I mean, the biggest thing is definitely just enthusiasm and a willingness to take initiative if you're at a startup. I mean, science is just so exciting. Science is really cool. I've been working in labs for over 10 years now, and I'm still really excited about it. And but the the people who come into the lab for the first time and, and are seeing cells growing for the first time and yeah, seeing seeing the process of developing a media without any sort of serum in it and realizing that, you know, we can do that and we can like use our brains in order to kind of achieve these goals and, and make these things better and, and showing that enthusiasm. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I would say the young people, the youngest people in our lab when they are first starting out and don't really know anything about the lab work. That's the biggest thing they bring, just their enthusiasm. It makes us all remember why we kind of got into science in the first place. And then in addition, yeah, especially if you're at a startup, being willing to take initiative at a startup, there may not be somebody who tells you to do something in a startup, but that something probably needs to get done by somebody. And so if you're able to jump in and take some initiative and, and make sure that something gets done, even if it's as simple as taking out the trash, those are the little things that just go such a long way in a startup. And they make you kind of an awesome human as well. Yes. So you're taking in people to do this lab work who haven't done lab work before. 
Yeah. So we have a junior research scientist program where we're mostly hiring uh, scientists who are straight out of undergrad, especially straight out of an honors degree at undergrad. And several of them have never been in a cell culture lab before. Uh, two of our most recent ones I'm thinking of joined us in September and they were just offered full-time jobs with Bao um, at the close of their six-month program here as junior research scientists. They've just learned so much and taken such great initiative and you know we don't know what we would do without them so we'd be foolish not to hire them. They've learned so much. That's pretty astonishing for such a young company to be taking on young people who have no experience like often in those situations they look for seniors and stuff to just do it. Well, I think I think that enthusiasm and that, you know, willingness to take initiative, those two things are valued really, really highly at VOW. And we've seen that in, in abundance from our junior research scientists. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to get done in the lab that, you know, you can teach somebody over the course of about a month. And once they're up and running, you know, they're enjoying themselves and stuff's getting done and everybody's really happy. So it's definitely a it's, the six-month program is definitely a great learning opportunity. And then, yeah, it definitely benefits us as well once those superstars have been trained for six months and are ready to look for a full-time job. And hopefully we we can give them a full-time job. Hopefully you can snaffle them up. Exactly. So is there anything about your current job or about lab-grown meat in general that you wish the general public understood? Or is it sort of not at that stage yet where you're worried about general public understanding? So I will say that it's been interesting pivoting to the cultured meat industry, as opposed to when I was previously working in more of an immunology setting, because I definitely get a lot more kind of skepticism and concern around my new job in cultured meat than before when I said that, you know, I, I study autoimmune diseases. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really great stuff. So, so I think there's a, I think there is a little bit of kind of general skepticism still out there around cultured meat, which kind of surprises me, I guess, in a way in that, or not surprises me maybe, but um, I guess I do wish that people understood that cultured meat really isn't that scary. I mean, biologically speaking, we're not even talking about genetic modification, which is a frequent occurrence in a lot of the food that people eat. I mean, biologically speaking, we're talking about the same building blocks as the animal muscle cell. And then in addition, we're also growing these muscle cells in a super sterile lab, which is you know, a lot cleaner than probably the local slaughterhouse. And so as a result, yeah, the, the kind of skepticism around kind of the scariness of clean meat or, or lab meat or cultured meat, however however we want to phrase it, is something that I've kind of received a little bit of. And, and I, I kind of wish that people maybe had a slightly better understanding of, of what cultured meat really is. And maybe just a bit of open-mindedness towards it. Yeah. Is, do you think that will diminish as the products become available? Because I do. Yeah, it's just too theoretical and it's kind yeah. of a bit like, ew. <laughs> I think it's hard not to think of like a mad scientist lab when somebody says lab grown meat and you picture, you know, the green beakers and the, the, the foam rising out of the, the strange dishes. And, and it sounds scary and kind of otherworldly, but in reality, it's, it's actually pretty boring looking. Um, and I think when it's kind of packaged in, in the supermarkets and it's cheaper and tastier than alternatives, all right, what, what we're currently used to right now, I, I suspect that people will get accustomed to it pretty quickly. You forgot to mention the electrodes. I imagine like little electrodes being inserted into teeny tiny muscles and them going zip, zip. <laughs> 
it's not quite as you make it sound very exciting are you telling me it's more exciting in my head that's so disappointing I know I know I'm really sorry no I think what you're probably talking about will be a lot more palatable to a lot more people long term probably yeah so no other myths out there that we need to bust sure are there other myths about cultured meat i've only been doing this for eight months so you might have heard some some good ones that i haven't heard of no i haven't they're just the ones that i could invent in my head Mm. okay but people at parties aren't like oh lab-grown meat that's sus or something yeah i mean well to be fair i haven't gone to that many parties since oh yeah (laughs) but um but but yeah i mean some sometimes when i meet people there's a little bit of a hmm i don't know about that I do think it is probably it's mostly just that kind of unfamiliarity and and maybe that image that maybe people have outside of science of of yeah that that crazy mad scientist happenings when when yeah in reality it's it's actually quite boring and I think Vow has been pretty open about that too and that I think Vow has done a pretty good job so far of trying to be really transparent about what cultured meat is like we just moved into our new lab facility and kind of in line with with this idea of being really transparent about cultured meat, our lab is transparent. Like we have glass walls all over our lab. And honestly, it's very strange. I've never worked in a lab where we had glass walls, but I think that really kind of speaks to the ethos of, we just want it to be so crystal clear, everything that we're doing in the lab. So anyone can kind of walk into our, walk into our office, any sort of investor can come in or, or anybody who has a meeting here and see absolutely everything that's happening in the Vow Lab at any point in time. Which I think it's worth remembering is starkly in contrast to the current meat industry. Yes, definitely. You know, I think we've got so good at forgetting, deliberately forgetting what happens to create meat at the moment that something new, we're just like, ew, when if we thought about what actually happens with a chicken or something, we'd be like, ew. I, I would I have to agree with you. I think I didn't think about it very much for many years and it's only been since getting involved with Thou and thinking about it more that I'm like, hmm, yeah, no, this needs to change. Which again is good fuel for you doing your own work. Absolutely. Great system. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you would like to share? I think we've covered a lot of really interesting things about cultured meat. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed chatting about it. I don't chat about the big picture cultured meat a lot, to be honest. Mostly I'm at my lab thinking about science. Kind of it's just all a given here. So it's it's fun talking to somebody who maybe has doesn't think about cultured meat twenty four seven and being like, Oh yeah, you're right. This is really cool. I'm glad because it is and people are gonna be like once they get past the squeamishness, they're gonna be like, Whoa, imagine a world where we could like obviously I'm extrapolating many years in the future but where you could like custom order meat oh yeah it may not even be that many years in the future and also hopefully it'll just be that much more delicious than absolutely any kind of meat we've ever experienced to date I mean that would be the really really cool thing if you know we, we've able to kind of fix some of the environmental challenges and also have this amazing tasting meat I do love a good win win no doubt I'm kind of imagining it, supermarket tomatoes, for example, they've kind of somehow grown all the flavor out of them. And you only realize that when you have a homegrown tomato. And I'm kind of imagining that it's going to be a similar experience where we've got so used to this meat, which by and large, it's got like extra water and stuff put in it. It's not super flavorsome. And when we have something that's the equivalent of a homegrown tomato, but for me, we're going to be like, whoa, that's definitely the goal. Awesome. Do you have a shout out for anyone? Is there anyone you would like to give a virtual high five to? 
I mean, besides my fantastic company, right? You're allowed to just say like your awesome team or whatever. Well, my team is really awesome. I mean, I it's it's been a, it's a small team. There's only three or four of us, and and yeah, they've just been absolutely kicking butt these last couple months. Um, smashing our quarterly milestones and, and just doing some really great work so i am proud of them cool well high five to everyone in your team then <laughs> thank you so much for coming in the show almost dr katie and it has been an absolute pleasure i hope i didn't uh, ask too many inappropriate questions <laughs> no thanks amelia this has been absolutely absolutely fantastic really enjoyed it Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 